We're in two weeks of a, a very short sermon series that we're calling Packed and Ready. That sounds so creepy in some ways. So we're not suggesting that you bring guns to church. Um, it, it's not suggesting that we're ready for an active shooter. Uh, we, we would be, hopefully, right? Um, but that's not at all what we're saying. We are making sure that we have all that we need for the next steps in our journey as a faith community as we move into this year for our church. Um, I think most of you guys know, if you've been around here for a bit, that, that we go away on a weekend every January, the last week of January, the last um, Sunday in January, the elders go away and we, we pray and we plan and we lay this foundation for the year. And we did that as a group of leaders and a couple of weeks ago. Um, and we're going to talk more about that on February 22nd. Remember, I think the last time I preached, I, I confirmed with you that you don't have anything to do in February, Right? Most of you guys agreed because it's cold out. You, you really don't have anything to do. Uh, but you do have something to do because February 22nd, you're going to join us for our love feast, right? Where there's going to be an epic brunch fest. Who doesn't like food? Hello, we're Christians. We like food. So you're going to join us for that. And we're going to talk about our plans for the year that we believe God has for us. Um, last week, Steve talked about the importance of being packed and ready with prayer and presence. Like, if we don't have God going on this journey with us, then guess what? It's not a journey worth taking as a church. Would you guys agree? We're not here to offer a whole bunch of self-help. That doesn't mean we're against psychology. As a matter of fact, that's Steve's background and my background. So we believe in, we believe in science. We believe that, that God wants to use the gifts that we have. But we also believe that... God has so much more than any of those things. And he wants to, he wants to uh, shape us um, in a fresh way. Um, so today, we're going to talk about love as a church. Probably not too surprising as we move into to Valentine's Day. Strangely enough, that wasn't the plan. It just happened that way. But we're talking about love. Why are we going to talk about love as a church community? Well, to put it simply, the world has a hard time believing that the church is loving. Okay, right? If that's not surprising, if that is surprising to you, I want to encourage you to spend time with people who aren't Christians. Because if you're, if you're surprised by that statement, or if you think that overall the church is known for being loving, um, my guess is you haven't spent a whole lot of time with people who don't know Jesus in a while. Um, the world has a hard time believing that we are loving. Don't get overly sensitive about that unless, of course, that applies to you. We can argue all we want that it's the media's fault. Uh, we can say it's the Democrats' fault. We can say it's the Republicans' fault. Um, we, we can argue that it's the, the war on Christmas's fault. That's why the church isn't that loving, because we have to, we have to battle. Or maybe um, there's a, a harder pill to swallow that's true, um, that we actually do have a love problem. I've always found it funny when I'm in a situation where someone is asked to self-describe. Have you ever been in a, a group of people and it's like, hey, tell us about who you are. And, and they say things like, I'm a people person. And you kind of look at the person and you're just like, uh, maybe you should ask around. Have you ever been in that experience before? Um, I, I, I'll never forget this. I don't remember too many sermons growing up. Uh, one, because I didn't listen very well and two, because I didn't go to church that often. But I, I remember one sermon in particular. And uh, the pastor was telling this story 
And he, he went on and on telling the story about this kid that he knew growing up. And at one point he said, and he was talking about how this kid got great grades and he really didn't ever do anything wrong. And I, I remember specifically that he said he never looked at porn. <laughs> I was just like, that's a weird thing to add in, but okay. Uh, usually means probably did. Um, he didn't do anything wrong. And he said, and some people uh, thought that he was a genius. And everyone's kind of like, this is getting weirder the way I mean this. And then he goes on to say, and that kid was me. And I remember thinking, I could never listen to this guy again. Because my dad told me that day, we left church and we went to eat lunch. And my dad said, if, he goes, just to be really honest and, and direct with you. He said, a genius never has to tell someone that he's a genius. So that's always stuck with me. So I always find it funny when people try to convince you of, of who they are. Um, honestly, the church should never have to tell people that it's loving, right? We should never have to tell people. We should just be known that, uh, th- that we're a loving people. We, sh- we should probably take a look at the possibility that we're getting love a little bit wrong, though, if there are enough people out there that are telling us that we aren't loving. I, I found this article um, that was published in the New York Times near the end of 2019. Um, and it's, it's real easy to say, well, we, let's just dismiss that. It's the New York Times or it's the Washington Post or it's the secular world. But I think we have to take a look at this um, because it speaks to how the world perceives Christianity. And I think we need to know how we're perceived. It says this. It says, perhaps for the first time since the United States was established, a majority of young adults here do not identify as Christian. Only 49% of millennials consider themselves Christians, compared with 84% of Americans in their mid-70s or older, according to a new report from the Pew Research Center. We don't have good historical data, and the historians I consulted are wary of definitive historical comparisons, but something significant seems to be happening. The share of American adults who regard themselves as Christians has fallen 12 percentage points in just the last decade. Okay, that's significant. 2009 to 2019, we saw a drop of 12 percentage points of people who claim to be Christians. It continues, it says, the U.S. is steadily becoming less Christian and less religiously observant, the Pew Research study concluded. Some on the religious right will thunder that this is a result of a secular war on Christianity. Christians and Christianity are mocked, belittled, smeared, and attacked, declared an essay on Fox News's website titled, How Long Will I Be Allowed to Remain a Christian? This mockery of Christians is, as I've written many times, both real and wrong. But a far bigger threat to the brand of Christianity comes, I think, from religious blowhards who have entangled faith with bigotry, sexism, homophobia, and xenophobia. For some young people, Christianity is associated less with love than with hate. So, Whatever we think about this as, as a group or whatever we think about this article as individuals, it would probably be good for us to reprocess what it looks like to be a community that loves people well because we definitely have a perception issue with the world. Uh, there, there are all sorts of kinds of love uh, talked about uh, on the pages of Scripture. Um, Some of the most common ones are brotherly love, which is about close friendship. We all have close friends, and that's brotherly love. There's there's family love, and and for some of us, it's like, well, that at least happens at Christmas, right? I'm joking. It's okay. You can laugh. 
um, we, we all have dysfunction in our families. And sometimes uh, it's accentuated when we get together for periods of time, right? Um, there's also our favorite feeling kind of love. It's romantic love. Uh, that's the, the falling in love kind where you can't think straight and you can't see each other's faults. So I'm just going to tell you this. This is worth the price of admission. I'm not sure what they charged you when you came in. I'm, I'm just teasing. They didn't charge you anything, and if they did, uh, please report them. Um, but uh, the, the reality is uh, if, you, if you get married during that time, you're setting yourself up for gross failure, right? You need to see each other through the cycles of life long enough it's really, really dangerous to get married when all you see, as Ben Brooks would say, are rainbows and unicorns. Very, very dangerous to get married during that time because you won't see clearly. But that's not the kind of love that we're going to focus on today. The kind of love that we're going to talk about today um, is a love that's really distinct from those kinds of love. All those other kinds of love are conditioned on reciprocity. All of those kinds of love basically are, you can, say that you're, you can say that romantic love is unconditional, but you know what? I've never seen a marriage where there, isn't, where there isn't give and take. And I've never seen a marriage that doesn't falter where there's one who gives everything and one who doesn't. It, 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 that's just the nature of human relationships. But there's one kind of love that is completely different, and it's called agape love. And it's love that we need for this journey because it is the kind of love that makes us stand out in a world that is conditioned on conditional love, right? This is what makes us completely different than the rest of the world. The late theologian, uh, philosopher, and author Norman Geisler described the loves found in the Bible like this. He says, erotic love is egoistic. It says, my first and last consideration is myself. Philic love is mutualistic. It says, I will give as long as I receive. Agapic love, on the other hand, is altruistic, saying, I will give, requiring nothing in return. Do you notice how different that is compared to the other loves? I will give, requiring nothing in return. So today we're going to dive into what agape looks like. It's thoroughly detailed in a passage of scripture that you've heard in, in every single wedding that you've ever been to. Um, it's, uh, it's more than uh, love that should exist in a marriage. It's love that should exist in all of the relationships that a Christian has with another Christian or a Christian has in the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8. It says, Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy it does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects its trust. It always hopes. It always perseveres. Love never fails. Now, I considered doing a 15-point sermon today, but I'm not Baptist. Instead, we're going to look at a, uh, one of my very favorite examples in Scripture of this kind of love and action. I love this story. I'm sure you're familiar with it. If you've been to church more than a few times, you've probably heard the story of the Good Samaritan. I love this story. 
Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. It says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Isn't that a question we ask often? In reply, Jesus said, because Jesus always gave answers that kind of cut to the heart, right? He didn't just say, well, let me define who your neighbor is. He always gave long stories and response that frustrated everybody. (laughs) He said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Guys, isn't it easier to talk about it than to be about it? Have you noticed that? It's so much easier to talk about it. And, and we can easily put ourselves in the position of the good, good Samaritan and we can be convinced that that would be who we are in the story. But if we do that too quickly, we're really missing the whole point. It's easier to talk about it than to be about it. I came across um, an interpretation, a, a modern day interpretation of this passage um, by a, a retired Lutheran pastor named Edward Markhart. He wrote this interpretation of the parable. He said, One day a priest went to visit the Jericho Road. He was a very religious man, and he saw somebody who had been hurt on the Jericho Road, and he was mortified. He came and gave that person last rites, and he quickly ran back to the parish as fast as he could. The following Sunday, he gave a sterling sermon about the Jericho Road, and he felt so much better. Then there was a pastor who went down to the Jericho Road, and she was appalled by what she saw. It was awful on the Jericho Road, and so she came back to her church, and she taught a course called The Biblical Understanding and Perspective of Poverty. They showed films of people who were beaten up on the Jericho Road, and everyone felt rotten, but they all felt so good that they'd finally done something for the people on the Jericho Road. Then there was still another person. Now, he didn't go to the Jericho Road, but he saw it on TV. He then gathered thousands of people together and they sang songs about the Jericho Road. You should have seen them with their microphones and all the spotlights, how they sang and prayed so beautifully about the Jericho Road. Then there was a left-wing activist who went to the Jericho Road. And he was incensed. He was angry by what he saw. So he came back and he organized demonstrations in the cities. He got everyone out of the schools, colleges, and universities and they marched on the capital city. Yes, they were very active on behalf of the people on the Jericho Road. Then there was a person on the political right, and she went down to the Jericho Road, and 
and, uh, and wow, was she aware of the moral decay. She thought, we've got to solve this problem. We've got to raise employment and change the economy. So what did she do? She lessened taxes for the rich so the rich would have more money to make investments, so there would be more jobs for the poor. And she increased the tax on the poor so all people could help pay for the cost of maintaining the Jericho Road. While these people were all busy, the man on the Jericho Road died. Didn't Jesus always cut to the heart of the issue? Um, There's a good chance, if you're really being honest, you kind of identify with one of those groups. And there's a good chance that there's something in every single person here that feels a little bit offended by that story, right? I, I, there, I'm not going to say which one it is for me, but there's a, there's, a little, there's a little thing in me that went, ouch, right? Isn't there something in you that when you, when you hear that, you're like, that is my leaning. Now, we don't try to do that, but there's something in us that sort of leans in one of these ways that doesn't, go, that doesn't yield to the direction that Jesus would have us go. So, so God always would show a third way. You know, you have two people that would argue in front of Jesus and he would always, they, they'd want to be like, hey, so which one of us is right? And he'd say, actually, there's a third way. It was never the two, it was never one of the two because actions and intent matter to Jesus. Actions and intent both matter in, in, in the economy of God. So what can we learn about love from this passage. What can we, what can we grab a hold of um, from this passage? The first thing that I would suggest is this. Love trumps religion. Love trumps religion. Okay, it does. It's bigger than religion. The priest and the Levite in the story, remember this is a parable, so it didn't actually happen, but, but Jesus shared parables because those situations happened all the time. And it hits people right where they are. So the priest and the Levite were the religious leaders in the story. And guess what, guys? They were technically right in what they did. They were technically right. Do you know why? Religious leaders could not be defiled. They couldn't be, they avoid unclean people so they could serve in the temple. But they missed the greater point that they had a neighbor to love, a very broken man close to death. Let's be really clear about this. All of us here today, every single one of us, you can be technically right if your highest standard lands on a technicality. You can be technically right and be very wrong by missing the heart of of God in the very scriptures that you quote. We've all done this, haven't we? The priest and the Levite should have understood that, but they weren't driven by love. They were driven by being right. How many of us would rather be right than be in relationship? Haven't you had times where you felt kind of proud of yourself for winning an argument? Or jumping in the ring with someone and you're like, yeah, I I proved my point. Yeah. That doesn't work well in marriage. And it doesn't work well in friendships. And it's not what agape love looks like. Our highest standard should not be, well, I was technically right. Our highest standard should be, how well did I love? How well did I love and not expect anything in return? But they didn't understand that. And they missed out on what Jesus calls us to do because love always does. I love that. There's a book by Bob Goff, and it's called Love Does. It's really, really important that love is not just sentiment, but love actually does. 
James 2.16, it says, If one of you says to them, and it's people in need, it says, Go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? Listen, sometimes we are called to be the very answers to prayers that people are praying right here in our community. We can share prayer concerns, but maybe there's maybe one of us is supposed to be the answer to that physical need. Maybe one of us is the answer to that emotional deficit that someone has. We're called to keep our eyes open and we're called to love actively. And what differentiates us as Christians is that we don't expect something in return. We can be really proud of ourselves for appearing to be religious. We can be really proud of ourselves for looking as though we haven't broken any of the rules. But let's never use the cloak of religiosity to cover up unconverted hearts. Let's never use religious language so that we don't have to love people the very ones Jesus came to save. Let's never use God's word to cloak hearts that are darkened and don't want to care for people the way God cares for people. Here's our second idea today. So love trumps religion. Our second idea is that love defeats xenophobia and sexism. Love defeats xenophobia and sexism. What xenophobia? It's the other. It's when we other people. Have you noticed that? We... That was a really cool sound. (laughs) Love defeats xenophobia and sexism. The fact that the earthly hero of the story was a Samaritan was absolutely mind-boggling to the Jewish audience. Here's why. Samaritans weren't just different than the Jews. That was enough to to cause pause for, for the Jews. But they were actually hated, and the Jews were encouraged to hate the Samaritans, and the Samaritans were encouraged to hate the Jews. They were looked at as half breeds, they were looked at as people that weren't real people. And there were all sorts of reasons that it was like this. The Samaritans weren't innocent in this, neither were the Jews. There's actually a story recorded uh, around the time of Jesus' birth that that says that uh, a group of Samaritans broke into a temple, a Jewish temple, and they actually took the bones of, of dead people and scattered them all over the temple because they knew that it would defile their place of worship. I mean, who does that, right? So the Jews felt like we have every reason to hate them. So hatred of Samaritans was encouraged uh, by, by the Jews and hatred of the Jews was encouraged by Samaritans. Some of you guys uh, remember 9-11. Some of you guys just really know about it from, from reading about it. But if you remember 9-11, there were two things that really stood out to me about 9-11. One was the country seemed to unite and we didn't identify mainly as Republicans or Democrats. But we also had this weird thing happen where anyone who identified as Muslim it sort of felt like they were a target in our country. It was a kind of a scary thing that, 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 listen, it was almost like, ah, we're just assuming that if you're a Muslim, you must be a part of, of Al-Qaeda. And there were a lot of Muslims that were very, very afraid to, to live in our country at that time. Very, very scary time for people. The Samaritans and Jews had that contentious relationship as well. They antagonized each other and committed atrocities against each other for a long period of time. 
So when the legal scholar asked Jesus, so who is my neighbor? He was pretty confident that Jesus wasn't going to say that guy that you're, supposed to, you're actually supposed to, that, that guy that you've been taught to hate. But that's exactly what Jesus said. This guy that you have been taught your whole life, it's been, it's been poured into you, you're indoctrinated to hate this person, that guy is your neighbor. The one that you think is an enemy of God is the one that you are called to love. And that shows us too that mercy does not have a religion. The hero of the story was the one that you would never pick. And it wasn't because he was a Samaritan. It was because he noticed someone in need and did something about it. And he didn't allow the cultural history to inform him of how to treat that person. He looked at that person as an individual and he said, I'm going to care for, I'm going to care for that person who's in need of care. Don't we all hope for that? How many of you guys have, have had a, a tire burst on the side of the road and you think, man, I sure hope someone stops to help. It's dark and it's scary. But how easy is it for us when we're in a hurry? I, I mean, how, I, can, I can rationalize just about anything, guys, just, just like you can. It's like, oh, actually, I'm in a hurry to get to church. So hopefully someone else who's more paid up and help the guy with the, the earthly problem of a burst tire right? Don't, don't we have all sorts of, of ways to, to justify the wrongness in us, yet we judge others? We're great judges for others, great attorneys for ourselves, aren't we? Every single one of us. But he didn't let the cultural history inform him. He let, he didn't wait for someone else to jump in and do it. He showed real mercy to someone in need. And it could have cost him even more than it did. And it cost him a lot. Because what you need to know about this area is that this road was one of the most dangerous roads in the first century. This road. Jesus didn't accidentally talk about the Jericho Road. It was actually known as the Way of Blood. You know, there, there are certain places that when you tell people that, that you used to go to, I, I remember when I served in hospice in, in uh, 2002 and 2003 um, on the south side of Chicago. I would share some neighborhoods that I went to and, and some people would just be like, wow, they sent you there? I was just like, what does that mean? And then I went there and I'm like, oh, I got it. I wasn't exactly welcomed. People weren't thrilled that I came to be there. I, I, I had people that didn't like me just because they looked at me and decided that I don't belong there. That is a terrible, terrible feeling. And, and this Jericho Road, it was a dangerous, dangerous place. It was a dangerous place. It was full of violence and, and oppression. So he could have been killed by stopping to help, but he did it anyway. And it also cost him. It cost him because he didn't know how he would be received as a Samaritan helping a Jew. Even the appearance of that is like, whoa, this is out of order. Samaritans don't help Jews. Samaritans hurt Jews. It also cost him money, a lot of money. He gave the innkeeper money ahead of time, and he said, apparently this was going to take the, this man a long time to recover because he said, I'll come back, and if, if it costs you more than what I gave you, I'm going to give you more money. So he owned it financially. It cost him time. It cost him finances. It cost him risking cultural standing, but he did it anyway. He crossed over the line of helping the other. So love defeats xenophobia. 
It stops othering people. There is no other in the economy of Jesus Christ. No other. Undoubtedly, Jesus shared this parable not because it was theoretical. Remember, God never calls us to do something that he doesn't actively do. But, but Jesus actually lived like this himself. And, and we can read about that in John chapter 4, verses 4 through 10. Um, because he met a woman at the well who was a Samaritan. And this was real. This wasn't a parable. Listen to this story. It says, Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sakar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then parenthetically it adds, For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Men also didn't associate with women. So Jesus was, Jesus was doing something crazy. Everybody would have thought, boy, he's doing, this is inappropriate. He is breaking the Billy Graham rule. He's breaking the Pence rule. He's breaking all the rules. He is having a conversation with a woman, and it's a Samaritan woman. Oof, you know those Samaritan women. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. This is, was a scandalous story. This was a scandalous story. But the ethic of love that Jesus calls us to grab a hold of for ourselves and demonstrate, it supersedes the smaller things that, that drive us like race and sex. Those are small. Very small in Jesus' economy. Here's our final point today. Love puts us at risk. Love puts us at risk. This is such a, a funny example, and it literally just came to me right now. It's one that's just in my, in my memory. I, I remember loving to get pumpkins when I was a little kid. I loved to get pumpkins. I loved to go with my mom to the store and get pumpkins. I really, really hated it when they'd shrivel up. And I felt like I was abandoning my friend when I put it out by the garbage. I really did. You can judge me. Maybe, I was an, maybe it's an only child issue. I, I am in counseling. It's helpful. Um, <laughs> I am, and it's, it is helpful. But, um, but I, I, I remember having such a hard time, and I would do anything to convince my parents to keep that pumpkin a little bit longer. I remember taking that shriveled pumpkin and I'd put it out, I'd put it out on, on the patio and I would just pray that a frost would come so that it would, it would last a little bit longer. And then when spring, I had one that lasted all the way to Easter. And it was shriveled, but it kept freezing. You know, you know things aren't good after they, they melt and freeze and melt again. Food's not good like that. I can tell you pumpkins aren't either. And it was one ugly pumpkin at the time. And I still wanted to keep it. And I remember when my mom finally said, Neil, I, I know you're attached to the pumpkin, but you have to get rid of it. So I kind of had a funeral for it. I literally carried it out, and it, it, was, it was mushing in my hands. And I was just like, goodbye, my friend. I carried it out, and I put it out by the trash, and I really did feel sad. And I remember walking inside, and my mom said, Neil, you're really going to have to make a choice about how 
you do pumpkins. I'm like, okay. I mean, I, just, I, I had it for a long time. I think I do pumpkins pretty well. And she goes, you're really going to have to make a choice that, she goes, if it's this hard for you to let go of, maybe it's just better for you not to get real pumpkins. And the next, I thought that solved everything. I was like, oh my gosh, I won't have to go through this emotional upheaval if I don't get a pumpkin. I literally remember the next year when my mom said, let's go get a pumpkin. I go, nope, no pumpkins for me. And we didn't get one. And I went trick-or-treating that year, and I remember seeing everybody else had pumpkins. And I felt that familiar tug inside that was like, next year I must have one of those. But I have to come to grips with the reality that with love, there's always the risk of loss. And that's how I learned about real love. Thank you. Thanks for laughing at my childhood. <laughs> love puts us at risk. It does. It puts us at risk. Maybe it's about a pumpkin. Maybe it's about a pet. Maybe it's a relationship. But love puts us at risk. And in this story, the Samaritan, the, the Samaritan went out of his way to cross the cultural and religious boundaries that were set up. And... and it shows us, Jesus sh shared this story to show us that his love transcends all of those things. None of those things matter in the kingdom of God. None of those things matter. And he revealed what his love looks like to us. There are a couple things we have to take note of, okay? Here's the first. Without Jesus, we can't love like this at all. That might sound, oh, that's, a, that's, that's what you say as a Christian. No, just try it. Try it. Try to love altruistically. Don't, don't, don't try to fool yourself. Uh, loving with no motive is not human at all. And if you think it is, try it. Write, write down how you're doing with it. Write down how you feel when you care for someone who doesn't care for you back. Write down your experience when you feel like you've loved well and it's not received well. Write down your experience of holding the door for someone at a store and then 18 other people walk through and not one of them thanks you. Write down your experience of when someone cuts you off in traffic after you already let them in previously. Like, write these things down. Experience. You're going to find out really quickly you're not, you're not nearly as good as you think you are. And you can't love as fully as you're called to. It goes against everything in us to love with altruistic love. Everything. And can we be real for a second? Sometimes I think it's almost like we're like, hey, but when you have Jesus, life's really easy. Here's the reality that I've experienced. Even with Jesus, loving like this is almost impossible. It, there's still everything in me fights against loving with no expectation in return. It is just hard. But we do know that his love can come through us because he's given us everything we need. We know it's possible, but we're going to have to fight. Uh, here's the second thing. The Spirit of God empowers us to do it. The Spirit empowers us to do it. You can't work your way up to this kind of love. You can't be like, listen, I'm gonna, this is my one-year plan. I'm going to love people well. I'm going to work hard at it. I'm going to do it every day. I'm going to pay it forward, backward, and sideways. I, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to love people well. Guys, when you try to do that, it's a formula for burnout because you're loving with your own strength. It has to be received. You have to receive this from God 
through the Holy Spirit, and then you, can, you have something to offer. A, a pastor friend of mine uh, said it to me like this years ago. He said, you have to have root, then you have fruit. Don't try to have fruit before you have the root. You have to root, then fruit. It's not something that you try. It's something that you do just because you are. If you're filled with the Spirit, the Spirit will come out of you. If you're not filled with the Spirit, you're going to get burned out and you're going to love in a weak way that expects things in return. And that isn't love that honors God. And it's not love that stands out in a world that is thirsty for the altruistic love of God. The good news is that if you've turned from your sin, you've been given that love already. Romans 5.5, it says, And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It doesn't say anything about you have to be, you know, a level 10 Christian in order to love this way. What it really means is if you have, if you've repented of your sin, then you have received the Holy Spirit who lives in you. You don't have to wait for this love to come out of you. It's just going to. You've been given everything. Hope will not put us to shame. So if we've received the Spirit, we will love well. So what happens if we love people with the love of God? What happens when we do it? It's a huge risk because they might not love you back. I think we have a hard time with that as Americans. We just want to be, we want to be liked. We want to be loved, right? They might not love you back. As a matter of fact, they might persecute you. They might not say Merry Christmas back to you. That's a joke. The reality is that God still approves of us, even if they don't. They might not love God back. Well, then what do we do? Aren't we supposed to save the world? Nope. It's not our job. It's our job to share his story. And it's up to him to do the work in hearts. And however they respond to the work that he does in them, it's, it's way beyond our pay grade. How they respond is on them. The onus is on the one who hears, not the one who tells. Isn't that great news? You don't save anyone. You don't save anyone. You can't save anyone. <clears throat> You've been saved, and you're called to tell people and show people who Jesus is, but you can't save anyone. So don't worry about the results. Just be faithful in what he's called you to do. Share the story. Show your life. Love people the way he's called you to. We can't own what's, what is theirs to own. We can only own what we're called to do, and we're called to tell, and we're called to be about it. We can't do anything else. When we love people with the altruistic love of God, we know that we're doing exactly what Jesus does himself. And he is not calling us to do anything he doesn't do actively. Romans 5, uh, verses 6 through 8, it describes that love. This, this passage to me always, it, just, it sort of grabs me. It says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. 
But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus took the biggest risk of all because love is risky. He died for every single one of us here. He died for every single person in Aurora. He died for every single person in Naperville. He died for every single person in Illinois. He died for every single person even in Iowa. He died for the sins of our nation. He died for the sins of the world. He died for everybody who has lived or will live with absolutely no guarantee that any of us would say yes to him and he counted it worth it because he loved us with a love that was all about who, how he felt about us, not about what we would do for him. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us with no guarantee that we would ever respond. It's high risk and it's high reward. And that's the kind of love that we are called to live out. It's high risk because they might not like us. It's high risk because they might say no to our Jesus. But it's high reward because what if they say yes? What if they say yes to this? We've won a brother or a sister and that person will be with Jesus in heaven forever with us. High risk and high reward. Guys, I don't know about you, but any time I have dared to love deeply, you know when you just love someone from that, that the deepest place that exists in you? In you? Any time I've dared to love someone like that, I found it to be worth it regardless of what their response was. Because I just know, I just know, I know that I know that, that the Lord is pleased when I love with no expectation of return, regardless of the response. I've never regretted it because it's connected me most deeply with the love that has always sought me. I'm going to ask the band to come up as we prepare to close. <clears throat> it's not often, guys, that I see something on social media that's profound. How about you? <laughs> it's not often that I see something on social media that really stands out to me like I want to remember it. Most of the time, I feel like I need to pour rubbing alcohol in my eyeballs and then delete my account. But I found something this week that I really took note of. Maybe you've seen it going around a little bit, but there was a, a pastor um, who posted something uh, kind of warning young men about the dangers of dating and marrying single moms. And the suggestion that he had um, in the message was that you better be careful that they aren't promiscuous. As you can imagine, it created a total firestorm of replies, right? This reply was my very favorite. This person wrote, it was a young man. He said, my biological dad left when I was seven. Immediately after, I, immediately after coming home from the birth of my second brother. I'd rather sleep in a car than with you, were his final words. I wouldn't see him again for 10 years and only because I requested him to be at my graduation. 
But three years after my dad left, my mom married a young Christian man who adopted us three boys as his own. Friends and believers warned him to think about it and to be wise since marrying a divorcee was to commit adultery. Not only was my mom a single mom of three, she also had breast cancer a few months after my biological dad left. For those who have had a big issue with cancer in their family line, you know what the chances of it coming back are. And he was a registered nurse. My mom, while dealing with divorce and cancer, put herself through college to become a nurse. Their Pentecostal pastor wouldn't marry them because, again, adultery. They had to be married by my uncle, a Nazarene pastor. When my mom's cancer returned with a vengeance almost 20 years later, he served her over and over again on hands and knees, cleaning up urine and vomit for eight years until God took my mom into his arms over six years ago. I understand the, the doctrine of adoption more than most others because of my adoptive dad. I cannot be disowned. I cannot be forsaken. I cannot be left out of his inheritance. All because one man decided to practice the gospel and spurn modern wisdom and marry my single mom. Is that just a tearjerker to read? You should clap way more than that. For real. That's the gospel. He says, From both personal experience and seeing the lives of others, single moms are some of the hardest workers and most faithful people on the planet. And he said to the pastor, he said, I won't read the whole thing. He said, Stop calling women like my mom harlots. He said, They are daughters of the king, and it's an honor to marry the king's daughter. If you've never received the king's love, this is your chance to do it. Romans 10, verses 9 through 11, it says, If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in me will never be put to shame. If you've never received that love, it's low risk for you to receive, and it was high risk for him to do it. Can we stand together and just pray? Father, I thank, I thank you that you love us better than we know how to love. God, I thank you that you love us through our sin. I thank you that you love us with no expectation of return. Lord, I thank you that you love us with an otherworldly love, and I thank you that you call us to do that too. So God, today we just commit ourselves as a community to always thinking of ourselves and other people in light of that extravagant, altruistic love. Lord, I pray that this week you would pour through us in such a powerful way that we would risk loving people that are unlovable to us. 
Father, and I pray for a great return by the power of your Holy Spirit. And it's in your name we pray.